for those of you who may not know, my name is Bill Acker. I'm one of the um, members of the provisional session of this church. Uh, my wife and I live in Nina. I'm a member of Wisconsin Presbytery, and we worship here. So it's a privilege to be able to speak to you this morning and to share with you from God's Word. Before we start with that, I do want to thank everyone for uh, helping those who did help us load the pods. We are moving moving out of our present home, and we're going to be uh, sort of homeless for several months until our new home is completed and we move in. So um, hopefully in November, maybe December, you may have another request to uh, help unload. So we'll see how that goes. All right. So this morning, I'm going to be preaching to you from Psalm 34. Psalm 34. And before I read the psalm, I just want to make a few remarks about a few things. Uh, this is attributed to David, King David. Is it, can you hear me okay? I need to be louder? Can you turn the volume up just a little bit? My voice is probably a lot softer than um, some of the other guys. There you go. A psalm attributed to David says, O David, or of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went home. So we'll talk about that in just a moment, but this is also an alphabetical psalm or an acrostic psalm. That is, each verse of the psalm begins with the succeeding letter of the Hebrew alphabet. All right, so anybody want to guess how many letters in the Hebrew alphabet? What's that? How many letters in the Hebrew alphabet? 22. How many vowels are in the Hebrew alphabet? None. That's all consonants. So there are 22 verses in the psalm. An oddity is that uh, one letter of the Hebrew alphabet, uh, the wow, kind of a, a W sound, is not used. I don't know why, but there are other psalms where kind of the same thing will happen. So turn with me just uh, for a moment back to 1 Samuel chapter 21. 1 Samuel 21. In the context, the bigger context of the verse, I'm going to read in a minute, Saul was livid with David. He hated David. And Jonathan, Saul's son, and David were very good friends. So Jonathan said, I'll let you know if my father wants to kill you or if it's safe for you to come back home. As they devised this little plan where Jonathan would go out with a boy and he would shoot an arrow. And if, if uh, the, he told the boy, you know, the arrow's way off, way off, go on further. Then David knew he had to run for his life. If he told the boy, it's okay, come, come closer, come back this way, then it'd be okay for David to come back home. So Jonathan fired the arrow, told the boy, you got to go further. The arrow's way beyond where you are. And so David knew that he had to run for his life. 
So other things happened, and then eventually he comes to the city of Gath. I don't know if you, how much you remember about Gath, but Gath was the home of a very prominent Philistine, Goliath. And a little bit later, there's some kind of humorous things that are said uh, where the king, David comes back later, and the king of um, Gath, Achish, wants to make him the keeper of my head. And probably when everybody heard that read, they would kind of chuckle because we know what happened to Goliath's head. But at any rate, David finds himself in Gath, and he was afraid of the king of Gath, Achish. Said in verse 13 of 1 Samuel 21. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see, this man's mad. Why have you brought him to me? Do I like madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? And so David was able to leave. And I, my guess is that there are probably a number of pastors uh, across our nation who would take uh, verse 15 maybe as the theme verse for their church. Do we have enough madmen? Do we have to bring more in from out of town sort of a thing? So not that any of you are insane. You're, you're all sane as can be. But there are... There are people who are insane who are in some churches believing. Now, David wrote the psalm, at least it's thought he wrote this psalm, some years after those events where he pretended he was crazy and he was released. He had time to reflect upon this, and then he, he wrote this psalm which is based on some of those experiences, some of the lessons he learned from the situation in Gath. Let me read the psalm for you at this point in time. Begin with verse 1. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and delivers them. O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears. 
delivers them out of all their troubles. Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. The Battle of Gettysburg was fought in 1863, first part of July, 1863. Twenty-five years later, there was a 25th reunion of those combatants who fought. Initially, it was going to be for those who fought for the Union, but it was determined they should also invite Confederate soldiers who were involved in that battle to come and hope that would be a time of great healing and um, just resolution of past conflicts and so forth. Unfortunately, the, the invitation went out a little bit too late for a great number of the Confederate soldiers to make it to the, to the reunion, but some did. One of them was uh, General James Longstreet, a Confederate general, who actually was kind of the toast of the town. He was just, uh, everybody wanted to, to meet with him and be with him, and one time he was on a platform. So many Union soldiers lined up to shake his hand that the platform collapsed. So it was a time of, uh, of resolution of past hard feelings and things of that nature. My guess is, on July 4th, 1863, if you talked to soldiers on either side of that conflict, that would not have been the case. They were fighting to the death. And they would have loved to see the enemy uh, dispatched very quickly. But 25 years later, there was a very different perspective. The 50th reunion in 1913 was even, even more grand than the one uh, 25 years before. It was thought that a number of participants for the reunion might come a little bit early. Festivities were to start on July 1st. So the U.S. Army, which was hosting a lot of the events and uh, preparing meals and tents and things like that, decided that they would have meals ready on the evening of June 29th for anybody who arrived early. Remember back then people arrived on horseback, stagecoach, trains, so it wasn't as convenient to travel as it is today. So the quartermaster who was in charge, a captain, had 6,000 meals prepared for that supper on June 29th. 21,000 people showed up. He had to scramble to try to stretch the food to feed that many. And there was a huge number of people from both sides of the conflict at this time. Many pictures were taken, hands were shaken, stories told, and it was a, a very good time for those combatants to lay any anguish and resentment and whatever they had to rest over the conflict. Now, David had had time to kind of reflect on a lot of those things, as I mentioned a moment ago. So in my sermon this morning, I want to do, I want to say several things. And this is a hard psalm to preach from in some ways because there's so many verses that are so well known. Uh, so I, I want to do justice to what you know, but also try to bring out some other things that you may or, or may not know. 
So what I want to do, I want to start with the matter of praise to God. That would be the first point, if you will. Praise God for his gracious help. Then I want us to move into what it means to fear the Lord and to learn to fear the Lord. I know it might sound unpresbyterian, unreformed, but there's only two points. And there may be a lengthy conclusion because I just couldn't get away from a third point. In the conclusion, I want to talk about Christ, and I want to talk about a martyr, later the name of Perpetua. So let's back up to the beginning. We need to praise God for his gracious help. And the main thing I want us to get across today is that believers are to understand God's greatness and the need to live in obedience to God. We read the opening verses of this as our call to worship. We are to praise God continuously. That means that morning, noon, and night, our adoration, exaltation of God should be in our very being. Probably a lot of you do that. You'll wake up in the middle of the night you can't go back to sleep right away, and you start thinking about God and how great He is and all the things that He has done and how He has helped you. And that's good. That's a good thing to do. That's part of what it means to praise God continuously. But then down in verses 6 and 7, said, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. David was someone who did experience disappointment, heartache, troubles. Part of that uh, was through Saul, who was king for quite a while while David was a young boy growing up. Part of those troubles even came later in life with his son Absalom. I don't know if this was written before or after that. But David had his share of troubles. But he says, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him. Through various battles, through David's experience in Gath, David saw God's work on his behalf. So he was convinced that we could cry to God and God would help us in our troubles. A number of years ago, almost 25 years ago, the church I was serving was sort of at a stalemate. We had grown to such a size that uh, we, could, we were self-sustaining, self-supporting, so forth. We were meeting in rented uh, quarters, which were not anywhere near as suitable as what we have here. And there was a desire on the part of the congregation to move to our own facility. But we needed money to do that. We actually owned some property, but we needed some other money in order to begin a building campaign. Now, when you're a church planner, you get to go to all kinds of conferences and so forth. You hear people get up and give reports, and everybody who's been greatly successful is the one who gets to speak. Not the poor guy who's sitting in a church that's sort of in a stalemate, not growing, not declining, just kind of going day by day, week by week, not too much happening. 
So I came back from a conference where somebody said that someone had just come to their office one day and gave the church 100 acres of land, prime real estate. They could develop, they could sell it, whatever they wanted to do, it was theirs. Others gave testimony of how the Lord sent great numbers of people who just kind of came into their church. Others reported how some people would just come into their office, lay a check down on the desk, say, there, this is for the church and your work. At that time, I was reading through the book of Judges. And it came to the part about Gideon, good old Gideon. Angel Lord appeared to Gideon. Gideon looks up, he's hiding from the Midianites and all of that. And what does he say? Here he is in the presence of God himself. And he says, hey, where are all the miracles? Yeah, I read about the cross of the Red Sea and the man in the wilderness. Where are the miracles today? You know, we're being oppressed. We're being afflicted. We have nothing but trouble. Where is our salvation? And I said to myself, that's exactly how I feel. I read about all this stuff. I hear about all this stuff. I want to see it myself. I want to see God's presence active in my life and the life of my church. And I began praying. For several months, I prayed. Prayed, Lord, you, you have to help us. We are beyond doing anything ourselves to go into this building program that we, we desired to move into. The time the church had a post office box one afternoon I went to get the mail opened it it was from a bank a trust fund at a bank I'd never heard of the trust fund or the person had the trust and I looked at the check it was a check for ten thousand dollars it was made out to my church but there was another church in town that had a name similar to ours and I said I'm sure this is for the other church the bank just got things mixed up I'll call and get it straightened out so later that afternoon, I remembered the check. I called the bank, got to the trust officer, told him what I thought had happened. He kind of chuckled and said, no, no, the, the check is for you. The $10,000 is for you. I said, that's good. We can, we can certainly use the money right now. And then he said, but that's not everything. I said, no, what's, what else is there? Said, that's just the first payment on the trust. Your first payment is going to be $10,000. The very last payment, about 17 years from now, will be $10,000. And every year in January from now to then, the church will get $20,000 for a total of $350,000. I said, say that again. He said, your church just received a trust worth $350,000. I looked this up last night. Today, that would be worth about $553,000. That's a lot of money to me. Maybe not to you guys, but it is to me. When I hung up the phone, I remembered Gideon. I remembered my prayers, and I literally just sat there, and I, I wept. I said, God, you are a great God. You do hear our cries. You help us. You provide for us. And David had experienced that and wrote about that. He saw God's work in his life. He realized that that feigning to be crazy was, was God's allowing him to get out of a very dangerous situation. David goes on to offer an invitation to people. Verse 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. 
This idea of tasting is picked up in the New Testament in several places. Those who've tasted the goodness of the Lord. You know, we, we, we're to taste not just milk, but move on to meat, and all those kind of things. In C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, there's a book. It's actually not my favorite book, but it's about the silver chair. Some of you I know like that. I've heard you talking about that. And there's a character who's introduced, has a prominent part in the book called Jill. So Jill has heard about Aslan, the lion, who lives, well, he lives in Narnia sometimes, but he's other places other times. But she had never seen him before. So Jill and Eustace are separated. Uh, she did something kind of naughty, and he uh, was gone, at least temporarily. But she encounters Aslan the lion. And she's afraid. She's afraid of a lion, a big lion. Not a little alley cat, but a lion. And she's thirsty. She's on the side of a mountain. There's a stream of water flowing. The lion is laying next to the stream. And she's afraid to go up and drink from the stream because she's afraid the lion will pounce on her and eat her. She asks if he's ever eaten anybody before, and he kind of answers in a humorous way. He didn't realize it, but we would realize it reading. He said, oh, yeah, I've devoured uh, men and women, boys and girls, kings and kingdoms, and things like that. So finally she says, I think I'll, I'll go look for another stream. And Aslan says, there is no other stream. This is the only stream you can drink from and find satisfaction for your thirst. And with great trepidation, she drank from the stream, and her thirst was quenched. And she realized that Aslan, as scary as he might be, was looking after her, looking out for her. So there's an invitation that's given to people to taste and see that the Lord is good. We want people to experience those things that we have experienced, to see God's love and goodness and kindness in our lives. David goes on to say in verses 9 and 10, O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, but those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. God's people receive what they need from God's hand. Another psalm, the psalmist says, I've been old, or I've been young, I'm no, now old. I've never seen the righteous forsaken or a seed begging bread. Young lions are the best hunters. Young lionesses. You've probably all seen those nature programs where there's this little antelope drinking water at a lake, and there's a lioness kind of creeping up, moving so slowly, you can barely perceive that she is moving. And then right when she is just about at the pouncing distance, a crocodile comes up out of the lake and grabs the antelope and drags it into the water and kills it. And the lioness runs up to the edge of the water, just enraged that her supper is now gone. 
Uh, of course, a ruckus from all of that. Every other animal there is on high alert now. So the lion creeps off to go to bed hungry that night. We'll come back another day. Yeah, so even those brilliant hunters sometimes go hungry, but God's people will always have the provisions that they need. Now, we move into the second part of the psalm because there seems to be a natural division between verses 10 and 11. And so now we're going to learn to live in the fear of the Lord. And we'll find out what that means. So David says, come, O children, listen to me. Now he's not so much talking about himself, but he's now addressing other people. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Well, everybody wants that, obviously. But we find that fearing God is a learned activity. Who would have thought that? Say, listen, and I will teach. So what does it mean to fear God? Now, going back to the Chronicles of Narnia, in several places people ask about Aslan, but they realize he's a lion. Is he safe? Anybody know the answer? No, he's not safe. He's a lion, but he's good. He's good, I tell you. Right out of college, having a, a new graduate degree in chemistry, I went to work in Everett, Washington at a concrete products plant as a laborer, pouring concrete into forms. Uh, Interstate 5 was being built at that time. The uh, company I worked for had a huge contract. They were working two shifts, actually three shifts at some point in time. I was going to work there that summer, then my wife, now my wife and I were going to get married in August of that year. I was going to go to seminary in St. Louis. They didn't care that I had a degree in chemistry. They didn't care that I, I think I'm reasonably smart. They didn't care that. All they cared about is, how strong is your back, Bill? You know, and um, it wasn't that strong, but I guess I got by. And uh, most of the older guys who worked there had been loggers. Uh, if you know loggers, loggers are usually massively strong, and uh, they get too old to do logging. Logging is, is difficult work. There was one guy there by the name of John. We called him Big John. He must have been about 6'3", maybe 6'4", massive shoulders, narrow waist, and his arms were bigger than my legs. So one evening when uh, we were a little bit ahead on the pouring, the foreman said to me, Bill, take that bulldozer blade and put it on the forklift and use the forklift like a dozer and scrape the concrete out of this craneway, this, this big enclosed area where we do our pouring, shielded from rain and so forth. So I went over there. I couldn't pick it up. I couldn't make it budge. I even got a lever. I couldn't move it. Another college student walked by. I said, hey, come help me here a minute. He walks over. The two of us could not lift this thing. It was just too heavy. Then John walked by. And I forget who said, but one of the others said, hey, let's see what John can do. He said, John, come over here a minute. He said, what do you want? And they said, uh, you see this dozer blade? He said, yeah, we need to put it on the forklift. And we're having a hard time moving it. So can you help us? He said, sure. He bent down, 
grabbed the two ends of the blade with his hand. His reach was that strong, that long, and picked it up and walked over and put the hooks on the bulldozer, or the forklift, and he became a bulldozer. And he's looking at us because our mouths are hanging open. They said, what? And he said, no, no, we just appreciate your help. We couldn't do it. Anytime, anytime. I think it was the other guy who said, I'm never messing with John. <laughs> there was certain fear we had instilled in us at that time because we saw what he could do. But John was not a mean guy. He was kind. He was nice. He was always willing to help. He had a good sense of humor. So that fear that we had was only in a certain area because of certain things that we saw. We definitely wanted to stay on John's good side. That was true. But fearing God is something that we learn. And there is maybe a, a, an element of being afraid of him because of who he is. But mostly it's wanting to do what we're supposed to do because of who he is. And when David explains what the fear of the Lord is, and I don't think he includes every single thing that's possible, but he mentions a number of things. He mentions what could be divided into three areas. One, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Watch how you talk. Two, turn away from evil and do good. Don't be caught up in wicked things. Don't do those things which are wrong. Do those things that the Lord has said are correct and good and right. Seek peace and pursue it. Don't be a quarrelsome individual. Don't always try to get into fights with people. Don't always try to make your opinion win the day. But seek peace and pursue it. And those things come out of a faith in Christ and understanding that God is the God who has provided our salvation through Christ. There'd be other things I'm sure we could add or would want to add about fearing God, but this is what David says. Live in a right way before God. Our actions demonstrate our fear of the Lord. Now, if you're like me, you immediately say, hey, I don't, I don't do any of those things 100%. I'm always saying things I should not say. I don't keep my tongue from evil all the time. I don't turn away from evil. Sometimes I run to it. Uh, I don't always seek peace. I mean, who doesn't love, love a good fight, you know? But the point is that when we do those things, we, we have a regret. We know, we know it's not right. And we want to not live like that, but we want to live in a way which is pleasing to God. And then finally, under learning to live in the fear of God, God's face is toward the righteous. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears. And the Lord delivers the righteous from all their troubles. As I was saying about this, I said, where, where could I show people that the Lord hears when the righteous cry? And of course, the book of Revelation has a number of places where we're told that the Lord hears the cries of his people. And he avenges their difficulties. God hears and acts. Now to the conclusion of the matter. Do not think from this psalm that the righteous are free from afflictions. Jesus would be our principal example of someone who was righteous, the most righteous, but was his life free of affliction? Of course not. 
He was always in conflict with people who opposed him. And then toward the end of his life, he was actually arrested and mistreated and crucified. But God delivered him. The ultimate deliverance for him was the resurrection from the dead. The ascension into heaven is ruling from God's right hand. Isaiah 53 uses the word afflicted, speaking of that suffering surgeon a number of times. Jesus knew what affliction was, and God delivered him from those afflictions. This passage says in verse 20, he keeps all his bones. In the context of the psalm, it's probably referring to the Lord even provides some physical protection to his people. The greater context, the Apostle John uses this in John 19 in reference to Christ, when the soldier did not break his legs, so this was fulfilled that not one of his bones might be was broken, might be fulfilled. In 2003, I believe it was March the 7th, a young woman by the name of Perpetua, a young mother, was killed in the arena with several of her friends. She became a Christian. She was studying to join the church when she was arrested because of her faith, because the emperor at that time had decreed that uh, if you profess the Christian faith or turn to the Christian faith, you have to be executed. Perpetua's father pled with her numerous times while she was arrested in jail to, to renounce the faith, but she would not do it. Rather, she started a journal recording her thoughts, some of her dreams. In some of her dreams, she envisioned entering heaven, seeing her brother who was a believer who had gone before her and things like that. When the time came for her to enter the arena, she gave her journal to a friend who then completed the account of what took place with Perpetua. So when a gladiator who was charged with killing her saw her, this was a young, attractive woman, there was a realization on his part that she did not deserve to die. They said his hands were trembling. Perpetua knelt down, bared her neck, his sword, but when he thrust his sword, because he was nervous, he missed her throat, hit her in the shoulder. She cried out in pain. He pulled the sword back out. She took his hand and guided the sword to her neck, and he dispatched her. I've sometimes wondered what was the testimony to that gladiator who realized here was someone who should not die, but she is. She does. So for years and years and years, the account of Perpetua was read in those churches along North Africa and into um, Rome. Tertullian refers to her, her journal. Augustine does as well. Uh, she was killed, I believe, was in Carthage on shore of North Africa. But she had a faith, and she realized that the affliction she had would soon be over. There didn't seem to be a fear of death because she knew that when she died, she would enter into the presence of God. 
I was thinking about the contrast between her life and Marie Antoinette. Don't ask me why, just think about that kind of stuff. I don't know if you know her last words, not let them eat cake, that was a misnomer, I think. But as she was walking up the steps to the guillotine, she stepped on the executioner's foot. And she said, pardon me, I did not mean to do that. Now, you think about it, you know, if you're going up and there's this executioner, why wouldn't you just stomp on his foot, you know? But if you did that, then probably the execution might not go quite as swiftly or as smoothly as you would want. So she may have done that. Maybe she was just being nice, or maybe she didn't want him to be irritated and just, you know, make that blade fall fast. I don't know. But her, but, but Perpetua is an example, I think, of what we can expect at the time of our death. A certain assurance that what we believe is true and that we are going to be ushered into the presence of God because of our trust in him and our fear of him. Let's pray. Almighty God, as we come before you, we pray that you would help us to put the words of these, this psalm to heart. Uh, there are a lot of verses here that we do know. They're pretty significant. But I pray, Father, that, that that matter of learning to fear you and to live with the afflictions, looking to your, your help in those afflictions, would be very, very real to us. In Jesus' name, amen.